Hi, and welcome to another in our series, Inside Predictable Success, where we talk to people who have experienced or bring to others predictable success in their own lives and career. And today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dan Pink. Of course, Dan is very well known to many of you listening, either through uh, his previous book, A Whole New Mind, or his current book, Drive, that we're going to talk mostly about on our call today. Welcome, Dan. Les, great to be with you. Dan, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Whole New Mind and, and Drive, but... Uh, I first uh, came across you, uh, gosh, way back, um, must have been about 2000, 2001, when you were writing, I think it was in Fast Company, and that eventually became Free Agent Nation. Um, what, what sort of led you up to that path where Free Agent Nation arrived? I mean, you had a background, I believe, I think it was <laughs> politics and law. Yeah, how, did you, yeah. how did you get there from there? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for remembering that book. No one else does, so I appreciate that. Um, uh, I got there, well, it's interesting, I got there in sort of a strange way, as you mentioned. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. I did go to law school. Uh, um, you know, I grew up in the America, grew up in the U.S., um, um, Columbus, Ohio, you know, went, did all the right things, went to college, went to law school, uh, wasn't really interested in being a lawyer. Uh, I was very, earlier in my life, was very, very interested in politics, and so that's what I decided to do. I worked on some political campaigns, most of which lost. Mm-hmm. I... Um, uh, and then just, you know, and ended up doing, um, on political campaigns, this, this things that are sort of at the juncture of policy and communications, particularly economic policy, and did some of that kind of work. And eventually just became a, uh, just, I mean, again, through no planning or anything, just became a speechwriter. Uh, I worked as a speechwriter for, uh, the U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich, and then became chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. And, you know, in the midst of, um, uh, in the midst of that, uh, work. Um, uh, I started saying, hmm, I'm not sure whether I want to be in politics. Um, I'm not sure whether um, uh, whether that's what I want to do with my life. Uh, I was very uh, uh, politics. American politics is a very, very cynical place, mm. uh, and I felt like you know this isn't really where the things going on there were really were not the things that mattered. And meanwhile, I looked. This is you know mid 1990s. I looked in the world and I said, wow. There are all these other interesting things going on in business and technology, and I'd always done some writing on the side, and I said, well, maybe I should go to work for myself and explore what I'm really interested in, and that's what I did, and just kind of careened from one thing to another, but ended up writing about that initially because I went and did it. I left a traditional job to go work for myself. I went to from the, um, you know, to... to um, uh, you know, working there to working for the vice president of the United States to working on the third floor of my home from the, you know, as we say, from the White House to the Pink House. So, and, so the White House to the Pink House, I, I, I nearly stomped on that. What a great line. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Well, was that, was the book, was Free Agent Nation a flex point for you? Did that sort of set you off in another uh, sort of direction career wise? No, I think that the, Decision to go work for myself was really the flex point. Okay. I, I think that that's what turned my life in a very different direction. Uh, and the idea of exploring what I was really interested in. It's sort of like, you know, there was a certain, you know, there, there's certain things in, in life that you're interested in and then you become less interested in it. And then there are other things that are profoundly more interesting. Right. Uh, you know, I had that experience once in my life when I was, I used to be deeply interested in baseball. Mm. Um, and then uh, I discovered that that girls were far more interesting than baseball, and I lost interest in baseball, um, uh, you know, and found that as a much deeper interest. Right. Um, the, 
the uh, much more interesting, much more complex, much right. more uh, challenging, right. uh, much more rewarding. Um, and I'll stop there. Um, and the same thing is true. And I sort of had this 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 interest in politics for a very long time as a, as a as a much younger man, and I eventually exhausted it. It just you know ended up not interesting me that much. And I'd always been interested in uh, work um, in particular, and and I'd always done writing even through law school. Um, I would. I, I was writing for magazines. I was writing op-eds for newspapers. You know, in in law school, uh, I did it even on the side when I was working in politics and even very very demanding jobs. And I think that's one lesson. Actually, it's kind of interesting for your listeners. Less is that everybody always. At least, I mean, maybe it is. I mean, it's a lesson that that I I didn't really learn, but it's a, it's a lesson. I realized, which in, the, in retrospect, what should have been a lesson. So here I was in law school. I was writing magazine and newspaper articles on the side. Here I was in demanding jobs, very demanding jobs, and I was writing for magazines and newspapers on the side. And in this case, when I was working for the vice president or working for the labor secretary, doing it for free <laughs> because it was I wasn't allowed to get paid for side work. Right. Um, and you know, everybody always tells you. Do what you love, and I, and I think that's usually pretty good advice. Um, but I think that the the better advice sometimes is to do what you do. That is, you know, what do you actually do when you have discretionary time, when you have freedom to control your life? Uh, what do you actually do? And I, I, again, I see this only in, in retrospect. That is, this idea of like that constantly on the side I was doing these things, no matter what I was doing for the main course. On the side, I was always doing these things, and that basically that should have given me a clue that that's what I really wanted to do. Right. So the um, and I always have a, I'd always truly had a very deep and abiding interest in work, and a lot of the policy work that I did um, uh, uh, had to do with uh, you know labor policy and technology policy and workforce policy and um, you know all those sorts of all, all those sorts of things. Um, and so you know then it then it came together and. Um, but without any great planning or foresight. Okay, so it comes together. Uh, you get Free Agent Nation, which, despite your, uh, you know, uh, uh, reference earlier, was a great book, uh, very formative, uh, changed a lot of people's views about what what they were doing at a at a you know very artificially inflated uh, stage in the economic cycle. But just a, a great book. Five years later, uh, comes along a whole new mind. Uh, were you? Working on that was that noodling there, or did you just decide, you know, five years later it's time to put another book out? How, how, how did you segue? Uh, no, that, that that had the, the seeds of that were in Free Agent Nation, definitely, because right. uh, for that I traveled around the U.S. talking to people who were working for themselves, people who had decided to leave large organizations to work for themselves, or who were kicked out of large organizations. And what I found, sort of the first hint that I had was that. Uh, there were a lot of these people, they were working as accountants or management consultants, and they were kind of sort of living like artists. You know, they would call their home office a studio, and, and that was kind of peculiar to me. And I just kind of I chalked that up. In some other business writing that I did, and as you mentioned, Fast Company, some business writing that I did for Fast Company, uh, a lot of the really interesting people I kept encountering um, in business were uh, often had a background in the fine arts. And they weren't in the fine arts in their professional life, but they maybe had a BFA in oil painting or an <laughs> MFA in ceramics or something like that. Right. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And then the other thing, just again, on, on, on happenstance is um, it, it so happened that, uh, that the fall after my first year of law school, I enjoyed it so much that I didn't go back and instead went to India. Um, uh. And I ended up uh, spending a lot of time in India as a pretty young guy and had always been deeply interested in India. And, uh, ended up uh, writing about 
uh, offshoring pretty early in the game mm-hmm. and recognizing that it was going to be a pretty important force. And, um, you know, so I started seeing all these things that seemed to be connected and then just looked at the data and looked at the numbers and said, wow, there's something significant going on here. I knew Tom Friedman stole that stuff from somewhere. <laughs> I know. Well, though he he talks about he actually he talks about a whole new mind in uh, the world is flat. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So um, at least so he acknowledges his, his sources. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. So well, me, you know, yeah. Please go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say uh, no. I, I think that I think it's actually uh, the mark of a of a good mind to listen to a lot of different voices and then be able to synthesize them. I think he does that pretty well. Absolutely. So we're marching our way towards drive, but uh, we've got to take a little detour here because. Um, then you bring out what uh, it was quite rightly called the first manga <laughs> book. Uh, may conceivably be also still <laughs> still be the first business manga book um, or the last business manga book. What was that about? <laughs> what was that about? What what got? I mean, I loved it, but but what got you there? You know, did somebody say? Did somebody triple dog dare you or or? What? Uh, you know, you see that. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I just. I, I thought it'd be cool and interesting, and, and it was. You're right, and that's why, and that's why I did it. Uh, what had happened was, is that uh, you know I had been to Japan and I'd seen how popular this form was in Japan, and not just for superhero stories, or um, uh, not just for superhero stories, but for um, uh, or teenage romances, but for all kinds of things. Right. And I said, well, why can't we do that here? And so. Um, I ended up getting a fellowship to go to Japan and uh, to study the manga industry. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, I went to Japan for a couple of months on a fellowship to study and talked to my family with my wife and our three kids and uh, to study the manga industry just to find out a little bit how it worked and ended up doing some magazine articles about um, about that. And... Um, um, uh, and it... Uh, you know, I thought it was really fascinating, and I, I, I thought I would give it a try. And the other thing was, the theory of the case was that there was so much, um, it, it, was, it was experimental in a number of ways. So you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about as a writer is, in a world of washing all this information, in a world where literally at our fingertips of our phone or our computer, people have access to all this information, what's the role of a book in that kind of environment? Right. And, you know, and, and you think about a career book, and I just, if you think about the behavior of people who are navigating their careers, if they're going for a job interview, they don't go pick up a book to find out about the company. Um, if they're putting their resume together, they don't go and get typically a resume book if they're, you know, working on their resume at that moment. They go online and right. say, you know, what keywords should I put in? And I said, well, if there's people are getting so much tactical information about careers online. A book can't give tactical information, but I think a book could give strategic information, big picture information. And right. so, um, but I think it could do it in a way that is very hard to do uh, on Google. And uh, and so this form was becoming popular. Uh, and so all these things coalesced. And I said, well, let's give it a try. Let's do a business book with ta- with with strategic advice uh, aimed at uh, younger people and do it in a form that is demonstrably popular among young people, but that has never been used for this sort of material. And right. so uh, I found a great artist named Rob Tempest mm, to be the collaborator super. on this. Super. And it worked, um, you know, it worked, it worked pretty well. The book did okay in the U.S. The, the big surprise, and this is what I love about doing these kinds of things, uh, like any kind of business person, is um, 
I mean, you talk about predictable success, but I think there's a level of unpredictability in all this kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, it's like, you're, you know, one of the great things, that, one of the things that makes business fascinating is you come out with a product or a service or an experience that you sell out there. And I think a lot of time business people are surprised by who their market is. Hmm. Um, the market that they think they're selling to might not be it. And so we went out there thinking that this is a great book for 20-somethings. At least that was my idea. And... We didn't do that well with some 20-somethings. Now, the big surprise is we did really well with a much younger crowd, um, huh. middle, middle schoolers. Right. Uh, who don't amazing. Get, who do not get good career counseling. So that's, that's brilliant. That's great. Yeah, it, it, it was a total surprise. And then we also ended up doing very well um, uh, outside of uh, the, uh, outside of, uh, the English-speaking world. Um, not even that so much outside of the English-speaking world, but outside of uh, the U.S., U.K., uh, Australia. Uh, we ended up doing very well in uh, a place like Brazil, um, to some extent pretty well in India, uh, to some extent pretty well in, in Japan, but uh, Indonesia, Turkey, um, it, these places that have uh, growing armies of very young white-collar workers whose parents were not white-collar workers, uh, and are looking for advice and don't have the kind of established career counseling infrastructure that you have in the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada or Australia or Japan um, and are looking for some kind of advice. And it ends up being a very easy book to translate, too. Absolutely. Um, I, I, could, I could see that. And I, well, I, I mean, there aren't that many words. <laughs> I love yeah. the, the content. I think it was superb. I must say, when I stumbled on your fifth point and I'd make excellent mistakes, it sort of it, it brought a whole uh, meta level of understanding of my car- entire career to date. Uh, I think is composed <laughs> of excellent mistakes. So uh, let's move up to to drive your latest book, which is the one I really want to spend most of the time on. And I'm going to pretend that uh, it doesn't have. I mean, just have a little, well about 25 post-it notes stuck to it and well thrummed throughout. Uh-huh. And I'm going to ask a naive question. You, you, the, your subtitle is. The surprising truth about what motivates us. So what is it? What's the surprising truth? Well, the surprise is that I think there's a view out there that um, what really motivates people, particularly in business and at work, is this, uh, it's an architecture of rewards and punishments. That if you want people to perform well, um, you give them the right set of rewards or threaten them with the, with the proper set of punishments. That is, and if you get that configuration right, it's, it's difficult that, um, People will uh, perform at a high level, um, and it's you know it's difficult, but at least it's it's doable and somewhat predictable. And that's wrong. Um, it turns out <laughs> if you look at um, um, 50 years of, of science, and, and for this book, which is a little bit different from the previous books, uh, it's you know I went back and looked at I don't know how many hundreds, if not thousands, of papers I read trying to sort of get the history of motivation and the research on motivation uh, over the last 50 years. And what it shows pretty clearly is the following, that for simple, routine, rule-based sorts of tasks, algorithmic tasks, stuffing envelopes, turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line, um, uh, adding up columns of figures, um, those, the, the kind of carrot and stick motivators, what I call if-then motivators, if you do this, then you get that, they work pretty well. Um, they're pretty right. effective. Right. Uh, the problem is, is that for the creative, conceptual sorts of, of work, the more "quote unquote" right brain work, uh, coming up with a new product idea, uh, inventing something the world didn't know it was missing, solving very complex, ambiguous, uh, uh, Merkley defined problems, that that kind of work, that I mean, sorry, that kind of those kinds of motivators, the if then motivators, uh, rarely work and often do harm. 
And this is a very robust finding in the social science, social sciences. It's been, you know, essentially birthed maybe 40, nearly 50 years ago and replicated and replicated over again by psychologists exploring different dimensions of it and even more recently by economists uh, exploring different dimensions of it, and they all reach essentially the, the same conclusion, uh, which is routinely ignored inside of business. <laughs> Certainly, right there. And is, was that the, the the progenitor for the book, Dan? Did, uh, had you been working with organizations and and getting a sense of frustration that that the old classic uh, extrinsic motivation wasn't working? Or, or it, it wasn't even that. It wasn't. You know what? It wasn't even that elaborate. I have to say. Um, it was really it's interesting because I haven't really thought about this much before, but your questions are making me think about it. Is that again? You know, it's another situation where the seeds were in the previous work, not Johnny Bunko. Although I do talk about intrinsic, I do mention intrinsic motivation in Johnny Bunko. Right. Um, the uh, the seeds were in, in many ways in a whole new mind because what happened was that that. You know, if people say if you're right, pink, or you know, if you're more right than wrong, that these right brain sort of abilities are the ones, <coughs> excuse me, are the ones that matter most. Uh, how do we get people to do that? What are the white, right reward structures? What are the right incentives? How do we motivate people to do this? And I didn't have a clue. Um, I knew there was a body of research in human motivation, and so I went to look at that, and I discovered that it was a uh, just a treasure trove of research, and B, uh, that it said some things that ran afoul of much of what we do every day in business. Right. Now, you set up in the in the book, and I thought uh, just as, as soon as I started reading the chapter uh, in which you covered this, uh, just a whole series of intuitive dominoes fell down for me. Uh, mm-hmm. It just felt absolutely right. You talk about uh, the old classic model of type A's and type B's, uh, but mm-hmm. then you reference what you call Type I's and Type X's. Can you share with our folks a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, that's just. I mean, that's just a shorthanded way of of um, of describing uh, a more complex set of ideas. And so, if you think about someone behavior that is Type I, well, let's go with Type X. Behavior that is Type X is more extrinsically motivated than intrinsically motivated. That is. Uh, it's behavior where you do something in order to get the bonus, in order to get the prize, in order to get the acclaim. That, that's the main motivation for doing it. Um, that's type X behavior. Uh, type I behavior is the opposite. It's the, the main motivation. The reason you're doing something is for the joy of the task itself, for, for the internal rewards, for the sense of satisfaction you get doing it, for the contribution it makes to the world. Um, now, it's very rarely that black and white, so that if you're doing something, if you're more motivated by external or than internal, it doesn't mean you hate every moment of what you do, and the only reason you're doing it is for the prize. At the same time, it doesn't mean that if you're more internally motivated than externally motivated for a particular task, it doesn't mean that you, you don't cash your paycheck hmm. um, or you refuse to accept any kind of recognition for these things, but it really means so what's the central driver? And what and what the, a lot of the research shows is that type I behavior is um, uh, healthier and more likely to lead to high performance. Um, and that's a little bit of a paradox because and there's a lot of I think really cool research. There's research on one great study of artists that I thought was 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 really intriguing uh, that shows that you know that that type X behavior often doesn't lead to the rewards that type X behavior is seeking. 
And right. that type I behavior can often lead to that those rewards precisely because they're not being sought. So there's this weird sort of Zen thing going on where the best way sometimes to get those external rewards is not to seek them. Right. And, and your, uh, a thesis, your underlying thesis then, Dan, is that there are three main elements to pulling out that intrinsic motivation, you call them autonomy, mastery, and purpose, right? Um, the, the, here's the question I had as I was reading it, is I can absolutely see, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, intuitively just rippled right through my mind. I can absolutely see that individuals respond uh, very much in one or other of those ways, depending on the environment that they're in. But uh, what I was wondering was this. Do you think an organization can become systemically a type I organization? Are there things that leaders can do to make the entire organization? And not, in other words, can, can they become more than the sum of just the individuals in the organization? Can you put in place systems, processes, uh, a dynamic that makes you a type I organization? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's really hard. And I think in some ways the default is type X, that is it's very much kind of externally externally focused. I, I think that it's possible. Uh, and I think what it means is it means um, uh, it, it means all, uh, essentially doing away with, with management at least. I mean, I'm not, you know, management is is a technology. We don't think about it that way. Gary Hamill is the first person to introduce this idea. It's, it hasn't been around forever. It's not a force of nature. It's something somebody invented. It's a technology. It's a technology designed to get compliance. That's what it's for. Uh, it's an 1850s technology whose, sole, whose purpose is basically to get people to comply. Um, that's fine. Uh, but And it's a good technology for compliance. It's not a very good technology for engagement, and that's more and more what we want. And so if you have companies that are run in ways that are provide much greater levels of autonomy, much, much greater opportunities for self-direction, much greater domain over – giving people much greater domain over uh, when they work, how they work, what they actually do, who they work with, um, then I think that – it can produce better results and become, you know, not rely on an individual, be an accumulation of individual behavior, as you say, but make it something that is part of uh, the, the ecosystem of that company. I think the other big factor there is is purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, there are a lot of. Um, I think what we're seeing more and more now is, in some ways, the inadequacy of the profit motive as a motivator. I mean, it's it's a good thing. Profit motive is it's makes the world a better place. I'm convinced of that. I think right. there's a moral aspect to it that is valuable. Right. But um, it's a good thing, but it's not the only thing. And in some ways, that is insufficient. It's an ins- profit is an insufficient motivator, for particularly for creative and conceptual tasks. Mm. Um, it's, an inco- it's, it's, it's an insufficient motivator for really, really great things. And I think there has to be a sense of purpose. So if you have companies that are animated by the purpose motive even more than the profit motive, and companies that have much greater degree of self-direction internally, uh, then I think that you you know you have a fighting chance of I think you have a fighting chance of scaling this. Right. But it's really hard, and it's doubly hard if you have if you're a publicly held company when the countervailing forces are ferocious. Right. I, I, that, that's a, a really interesting, as you said, because I was just ruminating as you were as you were sharing that on the little subsection that you that you've got in the book where you talk about five type I schools, and of course that's an environment where it's much more possible 
to make that happen than, as you say, the way publicly uh, owned companies are currently uh, almost over overseen at the minute. It's much, much harder to bring that into place. You're quite right. Um, you, you talked, uh, just moving towards a close then, you talked uh, uh, rather fascinatingly about how um, uh, Johnny Bunko popped up in different ways in different areas than you had expected. Are you seeing any trends and drive about uh, who's finding this particularly useful, about um, organizations, uh, industries, groups, demographics that, that are uh, finding it particularly helpful? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've gotten some interesting feedback from schools, um, more than I would have expected, uh, because I think in the U.S. especially, schools are moving in the exact opposite direction. In the U.S., schools are being uh, incentivized with more and more high-stakes rewards for short-term performance and tying teacher pay to standardized test scores and even things like you know, giving kids money for showing up and for getting good marks in school. Um, and so a lot of uh, interesting feedback from uh, from educators. Um, the, the, I'm getting far less pushback from business people than I would have expected for this kind of book. Oh, really? Uh, and I th- yeah, yeah. I, um, and I think part of that, honestly, is is timing. Um, I, I think if I had come out with this book, uh, and this book has been in the works for a few years, but mm. it's just timing. Uh, if I had um, come out with this book, say, two years ago, uh, it might have had a less receptive audience. Uh, I think that 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 coming out after a economic collapse that was due in part to high stakes short term external rewards um, made people more yeah, made people more receptive said. to it. Um, uh, I think that played I think that played a role. And so what I find people asking is, you know, how can I how can I do this and how can I um, not forego accountability when I do this. Right. Well, it's it's a masterful book, Dan. Uh, it, Thank you. It's certainly, uh, in my book, one of the most important publications we've seen in the last two years, and, and it absolutely beats uh, against the wall my uh, personal rule for business books, which is that uh, I have a belief that 95% of them contain everything you need to know in the first three chapters maximum. The rest <laughs> is just bloat. Uh, and yours it absolutely does not do that. The, the, well, thanks. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You really got to buy and read the whole book in order for for you to see the the, the multi dimensional way that you approach it. And I think it's a it's a great uh, um, a sister piece to predictable success. Uh, you talk about autonomy. We talk a lot in predictable success about self ownership and accountability as being a linchpin. And where you talk about purpose, we talk a lot about the need for mission, vision, and values really to be uh, reconfigured in order to get to predictable success. But the bit that you bring so strongly here that I would have to say go by drive for this is the whole mastery side of it, which we mm. don't touch at all. So it's a great combination. Um, what's next for you, Dan? What's what's in the works at the moment? Well, not a heck of a lot, Les. Um, oh, good. You're getting a bit of time to enjoy the pink. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm out. You know, I think that you know, I, I, you know, as much as I would like to believe that you can simply uh, write a book and send it out into the world, and the sheer brilliance of the idea and majesty of the prose will draw readers inexorably to its pages, uh, it doesn't work that way. And so, I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of time out there uh, talking about the ideas in the book. Um, to To really get the ideas out there, I mean, it's so noisy and crowded out there that you really, if you if you come out with something that you really care about, you got to spend a lot of time out there, um, uh, uh, really talking about the ideas. Not only talking about it yourself, but uh, but trying as much as you can to 
uh, encourage the conversations on the part of others and to listen to feedback from others and to hear what they're and to hear what they're thinking. So I'll um, I'll continue. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I will do another book pretty soon, and it, chances are its seeds will be in uh, in in drive. Well, they do not have a lot. Believe me, I'm like the you know I'm the worst person for a long term plan. In fact. Um, in fact, the, the, the Johnny Bunko rule number one is there is that's no right. plan. There is no plan. That's right. <laughs> well, it's a great book, Dan. Uh, I just Thank encourage you. everybody go get it. Go to your independent, local independent bookstore. Support them first. If you can't go to Barnes and Noble, and if you have to go to Amazon, but wherever you get it, get a copy of Drive. Go go to uh, uh, Dan's uh, blog at Dan. Is it Dan Pink or Daniel Pink dot com? I can't remember. They both get there. They both get Either one, yeah. You've done this before. Um, a great blog. If you want to know the role of nail clipping in the subway, uh, <laughs> that's a place to go. Uh, super stuff. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing with us, Dan, and all the best with whatever comes next. Thank you, Les. It's, uh, it's been uh, a predictable pleasure. <laughs> Thanks.